we sang and you sang, stating the words that we will be true to the faith of our fathers till death. Between the years 610 and 1870, when Rome was sacked by the Italian army, 50 million saints, the faith of our fathers, our fathers gave their lives for the truth of the gospel against the papal whore of Rome. After that song we sang that take everything that we have, may it ever, only, and all be thine. Precious words. I hope that we all mean them with our whole hearts. Brethren, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning and this evening shall be a practical subject that is not preached often, but it should be, because if we look at the Word of God as we're going to this morning, we'll see that it is a great source of trouble for the saints of God in the earth when they don't keep it, and that the Word of God makes constant mention of it, and the saints of God who were faithful followed this precept carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to read the 39th verse. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. This verse tells widows by the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God, the rules governing marriage. A woman was bound by the law, other than the exceptions of divorce, until her husband died. When he died, she was a widow, and she was at liberty to be married to whom she will, with one little qualification, only in the Lord. That is our theme for this day, to study marriage only in the Lord. I look at those words, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will showing all of her freedom only in the Lord. It reminds me of another commandment. Of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. She is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Great freedom. Only in the Lord. Don't Resent that verse. Unless you're going to choose to align yourself with Adam and Eve and resent the other one. They're both very similar. Great freedom, but a limitation for the glory of God. Look at chapter 11. Same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the 11th verse. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman neither the woman without the man, in the Lord. The single state is not a glorious state. It's not a great state. It's not a state to be desired in the ordinary course of things. If you find a statement in 1 Corinthians 7 that sounds like Paul is commending the single state, please do not forget that 1 Corinthians 7 is for the present distress. There was incredible persecution going on in the, in the city of Corinth where saints were being hauled off to prison and violated and put to death. And for that present distress, he said, it might be easier for you to attend upon the Lord without the cares of a wife and a family. But that is not the ordinary rule. The ordinary rule is it is not good for the man to be alone. And it's better to marry than to burn. And to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. That's the rule. Forget the exceptions. But the point is here in this verse that the man is not without the woman, neither the woman without the man, but there's a limitation in the Lord. 
Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Lord, help, help me. Amen. I want you to see that God created Adam and gave him a wife. And that wife led him astray from his God. And he gave Adam two sons. And immediately there was a conflict between the righteous and the wicked. And for 6,000 years, this earth has had a great conflict between the righteous and the wicked. Cain slew his brother Abel because Abel was righteous. Because Abel did what was right and was pleasing to God, so Cain killed him. God raised up another seed, Seth. Amen. A righteous seed. We can read about it in Genesis 4.25. It says that Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. There weren't men calling on the name of the Lord as long as there was Cain and his descendants in the earth. And so the Lord God gave Seth to Eve to replace Abel, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and these men are called the sons of God. They were the righteous in the earth. They were saints. They are our ancestors. And this morning when we sing Faith of Our Fathers, I hope you can trace your faith all the way back to the righteous blood of Abel. Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ would ask us to trace our faith back to. Righteous Abel. All the way back. Because we are in his line. And brethren, I want to appeal to you this morning to desire to be in that line. And to be faithful to that line. Chapter 6. What happens? Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. That holy seed, Seth, Enos, and those that were the sons of God, saw all these beautiful daughters of men that they were very fair to look upon, and they took them wives of all which they chose. They did not marry in the Lord. They married in the flesh. And those women in the flesh took their hearts off of God, and they no longer live like the sons of God. And so we had a mess in the earth. And if you'll read the next few verses, God looked at that mess, that there was none that feared before him, but the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually from their youth, except for Noah. And so he destroyed the earth with a flood because of mingling in marriages with the wicked. Amen. The flood. This is extremely important. And only God can make it as important as it should be to your hearts and your souls. I'm going to sound like it's important. I'm going to tell you it's important. And it's important to me. And I'm going to help enforce it in this congregation as long as I'm the pastor of this congregation. But is it important in your hearts? Do you want to be in the line of Seth and Enos and be faithful and be the sons of God and not be taken off of our faith by the daughters of men? And vice versa for all you girls, young ladies, women. This is the word of the Lord. After the flood, we get to start all over again, don't we? Righteous Noah, his wife, Three sons and their wives. We get to start all over again. The Lord's purged the earth of all living flesh. Noah gets off and plants a vineyard and gets drunk. And his son Ham makes fun of him in his nudity in his tent. In some way that we're not told. Could be worse. Immediately, Ham brings forth Canaan and Cush, and Cush brings forth Nimrod, and we have a mighty man before the Lord, I don't mean in the Lord, I mean before the Lord, rebellious before the Lord, who starts the kingdom of Babylon, immediately after the flood, and we have wickedness rising again in the earth, as those men rebel against God's commandment to to spread abroad, and to replenish the earth, they said, no, we're not going to scatter abroad. We're going to gather together in one place and build a tower that reaches into heaven and get ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad. 
in rebellion. So God came down and confused their efforts at the Tower of Babel. But from that point on, there have been minglings of marriages that have destroyed the sons of God. Faith is taken away faster by marrying someone who isn't in the Lord than any other way. No one's going to preach this today in this city. If they do, it's going to be very watered down. The way you're going to hear it. Now, I want to tell you about some godly men, though, and I hope that you want to be in their line. Amen. And they come through Noah. You can read about Noah bringing forth Shem, and Shem bringing forth sons, and those sons having sons, and then a man named Peleg, and then a man named Eber, the father of the Hebrews, coming down to Terran, coming down to Abraham. Abraham feared God. We are told that he is the father of the faithful. Do you want to know how faithful Abraham was in the subject that we are considering this day? Whom did he marry? His sister. You say, that's disgusting. No, it wasn't. They had the same father but different mothers. She was a half-sister. Do you know why he chose her to be his wife? Because he wasn't going to marry the daughters of men. He remembered the flood. His father remembered the flood. They had been told about the flood, and they knew how important it was to keep the holy seed pure. And I am not speaking some Mormon doctrine of holy seed in the flesh. For anyone listening by tape that might be confused, I'm going to show you the words, the holy seed in the Bible, and it's a spiritual seed. You say, does God cause election to run in families? Don't push me on that subject right now. But yes, he does. Turn in your Bibles now to Genesis 24. Genesis 24. Sarah had been taught the truth by her father and mother. So had Abraham. Abraham married his half-sister so as to not let happen what happened in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were very fair and took them wives and then God has to bring the flood because there's only wickedness in the earth. Now when it's time for Isaac to have a wife and some might say it was time earlier than this he was 40 years old but in Genesis chapter 24 I can't read you the whole account or we're going to be on this subject for 10 weeks. Verse 3 Abraham calls his chief servant to him that had rule over all that he had, and he said in verse 2, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Now for you squeamish ones, that's a euphemism. For a very, very sober vow. Remember, Abraham was the first one that had the covenant of circumcision given to him. And I will leave it there for the minds of all wise and noble men to be able to figure out the Lord's euphemism. He didn't mean, I will sit on your hand. I pray thee thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. That's how serious Abraham was about it. Abraham started it by marrying his half-sister. Abraham perpetuated it by dictating the terms of whom his son Isaac at 40 was going to marry. And she was going to marry one of his cousins. And not take one of those Canaanites. Did you see how strongly Abraham is convinced about this subject? Don't you dare. You are going to swear by the God of heaven and earth that you are not going to let my son Isaac marry one of these Canaanites. Even though, weren't they convenient? Weren't they available? Abraham was rich, brethren. Abraham was rich, very rich. Do you think there were Canaanite men that would have gladly given their daughters to Isaac? They were available. They were convenient. They were accessible. They were willing. Did it matter to Abraham? Those four things didn't matter to Abraham. I know what you meant, Brother Mark. He said, you are not going to take a Canaanite for my son Isaac. You're going to go get him a cousin. Look at verse 27. Genesis 24, 27. 
And here's the servant after he's run into Rebecca. And by the way, let me chase a one-minute rabbit. I forgot to say this last Sunday night about graciousness. Last Sunday night I taught about graciousness. And Rebecca is a great example. When the, when the servant is getting back toward Abraham's home country, he gives a certain test for the Lord to show him which woman is his master's wife. Do you remember the test? Think about the test. Isn't it the ultimate in graciousness? Let the woman that comes out to get water for her own needs, let me say to her, give me a drink, I pray thee. And when I ask for a drink, she will voluntarily offer to water all of my camels also. Now, brethren, how much does a camel drink? If she was using a five-gallon pail, how many trips did she make? Wow! Did Rebecca do that? He asked for a drink which you could hand him in a 16-ounce glass, 32, if they had all the ice cubes that Southerners put in it. But then she offered to to give water to all of his camels also. Is that graciousness? I'll take care of a woman. To a man, I'll take care of the camels also. Anyway, end of trail. Rabbit's dead. I just, I think that that, I've, you know, you look at that story and you see the servant praying that and asking for that particular thing. And yes, the Lord did it supernaturally, but within the request was a very, a test of graciousness. In Genesis chapter 24, look at verse 27, the words of this servant. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. How do we know that God was still with Abraham? Because he gave Abraham a wife from his brethren. He found a cousin for him. The servant said, I was in the way, and the Lord led me to my master's Isaac's cousins, his brethren. Look at verses 37 and 38. Same chapter. Here's the servant explaining to Rebekah's family about what has happened. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But thou shalt go into my father's house and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son. I'm showing you this, that as we start in the Bible, from the very beginning, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11, where Abraham marries his sister, chapter 24, we see the saints of God marrying other saints. We see the sons of God looking for the daughters of God, not the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. When the sons of God marry the daughters of men, we see severe judgments coming on the planet. Brethren, let us be warned. This is Abraham, father of the faithful. He knew about the flood. Believe me, they weren't living that far away from it. They were just beginning to replenish the earth. He knew about the flood, and he wasn't going to do what Genesis 6 did, so he marries his sister. Then he issues this oath for Isaac to marry also from his kindred. And so Isaac marries his second cousin, Rebekah. Now let's come over to chapter 26. Genesis 26. Isaac and Rebekah are parents now, and they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. We're going to read in verse 34. Next generation. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Look what it says. Which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Brethren, we have a task before us, and that's to keep our children and to allow them only to marry in the Lord so that we don't have this grief of mind that Isaac and Rebekah had for Esau and the two Hittite women that he chose from among the Canaanites. Look at chapter 27 and verse 46. You don't have to turn far, do you, to get to the next reference. Very important. Why did God destroy the earth with a flood? Because the sons of God married into the daughters of men and it stole their faith. 
so that everyone was living wickedly except for no one his family. 2746, and Rebekah said to Isaac, Brethren, you don't want to hear these words from your wife. I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? The local girls. The daughters of Heth were the local girls. And it scared Rebekah horribly that Jacob might take a a wife from those women. Notice the words that she uses. My life will do me no good, and I am weary of my life with the fear of having put all that time and energy and truth and training into a child and then watch them marry an unbeliever. Chapter 28, verse 8. Esau overheard that conversation. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. Now I've skipped a few verses there. It's the first part of chapter 28 where Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob away in answer to Rebekah's request of that last verse of chapter 27 to go back to their relatives and get another wife. But Esau hears that, sees that, and so he goes out and marries a relative. But brethren, it was the wrong line. It was the line through Ishmael. That wasn't God's chosen line. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Esau went again and chose the wrong line. Esau vexed his parents by marrying unbelievers. But now in the first few verses of this 28th chapter, here's how Isaac dealt with the matter. 28.1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham, to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Paden Aram unto Laban, son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Notice the line that we have here, Abraham, choosing to marry his sister, sending his servant to get a wife for Isaac, and Isaac married his second cousin. And then Isaac charging Jacob, don't you dare marry these Canaanites like your brother Esau has. Go back to our family and find a cousin. And so Jacob goes and marries his first cousin, Rachel. Look at 29, chapter 29. Well, we won't even read it. Verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14 describe Jacob and Rachel meeting when Rachel came out with her father's sheep. And they met and Jacob kissed her and found out who she was. And she takes him home to her father, and her father says in verse 14, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. Of course they were. They were very closely related. But notice the importance of these great men. Remember, he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And we read about them as being faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's because they would not marry those unbelievers. Esau did, and it was a great grief to his parents. But Jacob did not. Jacob married his cousin, his first cousin. Now, we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've all married well within the holy seed. And along comes Judah. Turn to chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. Judah is the tribe through which David, Solomon, and the Lord Jesus Christ would come. Judah chooses in verse 2 of chapter 38 to marry a Canaanite. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. She had a son named Ur. Then she had a son named Onan. 
Then she had a son named Shelah. So we have a Canaanite wife that's been that's polluted the holy seed, and we have three sons that are unholy. What does the Lord do? Urs, the firstborn, kills them. You can read here, Genesis 38, the whole chapter is about it. He kills them because he's wicked. What about Onan? He's wicked too, so the Lord kills him. Well, what about Shelah? Well, he's too young. And Ur had already had a wife taken for him from the Israelites named Tamar by Judah. But the Lord cuts out even that third son and there is a horrible sin that takes place in this chapter, and children come from Tamar by Judah. But I want you to notice that Judah's choice of a wife and the three sons that he had by her are cut out and erased by the Lord God. They're erased off the family tree. His Canaanite wife and her three sons are gone. And the Lord goes right back to Judah and Tamar, and you can read about, you can go to Matthew chapter 1 and see how the line came through those men. Now I'm going through all of this pain to show you how important it was. What kind of faith do we have? Do we have the faith of our fathers as we sang? This is the faith of our fathers. They did not want to mingle with unbelievers. They wanted to keep their children and their grandchildren pure by marrying strong believers. Those Canaanites would have professed anything to have married into Abraham's family. We are not looking for professing Christians. Most of the world is professing Christian. It doesn't mean a thing. It's not going to mean the peace of your children's marriages, and nor will it mean a godly seed. Now God had to warn Israel... Let's move forward to the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, and see how God had to warn the nation of Israel as they came together because he was going to take that nation out of Egypt, take them into Canaan, and they were going to have all the Canaanite women around them. And so he had to warn them. Exodus 34, verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Verse 11, Exodus 34. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. I read a long passage, but I wanted you to see that God said he was jealous, and his name was jealous, and he didn't want any covenants being made with unbelievers, the pagans of this world. And he said, you will not allow intermarriages to take place because if your sons marry their idol-worshipping daughters, those idol-worshipping daughters will go running after their religion and your sons will go with them. So don't do it. This is the word of the Lord to us today. I can read you, I could read you more passages. This is the first one. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Joshua. Same word, same thought, same concept. Same rule, you may not marry unbelievers. What about some men that did? Samson did. Samson had a real problem. Problems, plural, with Philistine women. Did it help him? Was it a grief to his parents? Yes, it was. What about Ahab? Ahab was a wicked king. Ahab was a horrible king. But you know what the Bible says? 
when the Bible starts talking about Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16, it says that he did, he was more evil than any king that was before him. But above that, he added to his sins by going and marrying a woman named Jezebel, who was the son of a king named Ethbaal. Now, who do you think he worshipped? When your last name says that you're worshipping Baal. Notice what the Lord says. Ahab was wicked, but he added above all of his wickedness by marrying a foreign Baal worshiper, Jezebel. And did they make a great pair? Did she help him? She was a wicked woman. Stirred him up to do evil, the Bible tells us plainly. Now let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. In the Old Testament, what man, by the blessing of God, had more potential than any other man? Solomon. Is that a fair statement? Potential? Was Moses as smart, as wise? No. Was Noah as rich? No. Were any of the, did any of them, were they going to live as long as Solomon could have? He was offered every piece. He could have spent his whole life pursuing the Lord with incredible wisdom and incredible capital at his disposal. Remember, the Lord offered him everything. What potential he had. 1 Kings 11. If you read the first ten chapters, you'll read about all that King Solomon did and how wise he was. But here we read, we start out with the word but. 1 Kings 11 starts out with the word but. But King Solomon loved many, what kind of women? Strange. Strange women, not Israelites. Strange women, foreign women, pagan women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. But he loved them. And you're going to hear those stupid words out of your children. But I love her. They don't even know what the word means. Because if it involves any sin or an object that is not approved by God, it is not love at all. It is lust. It is the selfishness of wanting something for their own pleasure. It is not the interest of the glory of God, and it is not the interest of the other party, and it's not their own interest except in the flesh. What does love have to do with it? I don't read in any of these places that Abraham chose his wife because he loved her. You love them after you're married to them. Then it's a commandment. Solomon, the most potential. Verse 4, for it came to pass. Now, does this fulfill what we read in Exodus 34? For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Do you remember what we read in Exodus 34? If you marry those women, those women will want to stick to their religion. They may tell you that they'll convert. But they're going to go, they're going to go back after their gods and they will take your sons with them. And look at what Solomon is worshiping. Is this the same Solomon that God appeared to him in a vision? Is this the same Solomon that built the most magnificent temple? Is this the same Solomon that got on his knees and lifted up his hands and prayed the most glorious prayer? Yes. How does it happen? With women. Marrying the wrong woman. Israel degenerates from here. Thanks to the great example. The Lord splits up the kingdom into the ten tribes go one direction, two tribes go another direction. 
They are wicked, and God purposes to judge them with the Babylonians. And so he sends Nebuchadnezzar and levels them. And he takes the entire nation captive, Judah, into Babylon for 70 years. And then the Lord in mercy lets them return. And when they return, we find that many of them have married strange wives again. Come over to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. Where does the Bible say, marry the woman that you love? That's ridiculous thought. It's a vain concept. Where does it say that? Do you know what it says? Love the woman you marry. Isaac never even met Rebecca. Could they have had a great marriage? Easily. And I'll show that today before today's over with why. Because they both feared the Lord. But what if he didn't love her? What if she didn't love him? What? What are you talking about? If they both feared the Lord, they both loved each other. You say love's not that simple. You can't turn it on. You can't turn it off. That's because you're not talking about love. You're talking about lust. Ezra 9. You know what? Look in your Bible. Hold the pages. All of chapter 9, all of chapter 10 is about this subject. Ezra finds out that many of these men that have been, that have been regathered to Jerusalem, shouldn't they be the most thankful Christian saints on earth? To be restored to their land with money from the Persian government to rebuild Jerusalem and their temple? And what are they doing? Intermarrying again. And Ezra and Nehemiah lose it over the matter in a righteous way. They lose it. Oh, there's so much I want to read here. Look at, look at verse three. And when I heard this thing, I can't read the whole chapters to you. I could, but verse three. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. I'm going to tell you what that word, what that word means. It blew his mind that they would be so stupid after being in captivity for 70 years and coming back to Jerusalem to marry foreign wives again. And those foreign wives are listed up there in verse nine and in verses one and two of this ninth chapter. He tears his clothes off and he pulls his hair out. That's, that's severe. That's extreme. He's upset. And see, if any of you ever see any of us like that someday, when you are trying to date or get interested in an unbeliever, remember, our zeal in the matter is scriptural. Tore my garments, my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. The faithful ones came and gathered around him. Because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, they were trembling, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. What trespass? Marrying unbelievers. Came up into heaven. And then he goes on and he describes for the rest of this chapter how presumptuous it was for them to have been mercifully recovered from Babylon by God to go and marry foreign wives. The rest of chapter 9. And then it goes into chapter 10. But do you know what happens here? God blesses They're going to correct the situation. Do you know how they're going to correct it? That they're not going to let their kitties marry foreigners again? Oh, no. They're going to divorce every one of these women, including their children, and get rid of the whole thing, the women and their kids. And so that's what chapter 10 is all about, and it lists the principal players in there by name. There's a whole string of names in the last half of chapter 10. 
Two chapters all about this one event, a national divorce day. But brethren, it wasn't a divorce day because it took two months. Ezra sat and every man had to come to him with his birth certificate and prove that he had married a believer. And everyone who hadn't married a believer, it didn't matter if there were kids involved or not, bye-bye. And they made that oath before the Lord. Now, Nehemiah was involved in this also. Let's see what he thought about it in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. You know, holy zeal seems to have lost its place in religion. Let's not let it lose its place in our church and in your hearts. In your hearts. Not the pastor, not Jim, not Newell, not Mark, not Stephen, not the vocal ones. All of you should have it in your hearts. Holy zeal. And you know what? Anything less than that isn't good enough for your children. You say, that's, that's narrowing the field down so much they'll never get married. Then you should leave right now because you don't have any faith. You should leave right now. I've got examples sitting out in this congregation that I can call by name. I've thought about this long this week. There's a little woman all the way back there in the back row that wrote me a letter one time and said, Pastor Crosby, I'm ready for you to dip me deep in the river. There's a little woman two rows in front of her that married my brother Jeff. There's There's a woman in between the two of them named Gloria that the Lord found for my brother Matthew. There's a sister here in the fourth row that married my brother and friend Charlie Doring. Who else did I have on my short list? Tammy. Tammy for Mark. The reason I picked those five is because those men were converted already and in this church and hearing such strict form of doctrine and yet the Lord provided five wives for those five men in this congregation. And do you know what? Those five women are lovers of Bible doctrine. What we preach, which takes something. You know what it takes? True faith. That's all that it takes. We're not the ones that have changed. We're holding to the things that have been taught for 6,000 years. It's all the other denominations that have changed, and I want to show that before we finish. Don't you ever feel embarrassed or ashamed about us. They are the ones going down the tubes to hell in doctrine. Our doctrine used to be esteemed by them. Nehemiah 13, 23, in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. Here's how a godly man responds when he sees intermarriages with And curse them! and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. And then he goes on and reminds them about Solomon, but look at his zeal. He contended with them, and cursed them, and smote them. That's a man of God. That may not be Robert Shule, and he may not get it an opportunity to preach in the chapel at Bob Jones University or in the Crystal Cathedral, but that's a man of God. There is no such thing as pulpit manner. This is pulpit manner. Right there. That's a man that God wanted to write about in His Scriptures. You say, that's too hard for me. You're an unbeliever. This is the Word of the Lord, and it is from the beginning to the end. Listen, why wouldn't you contend and curse and smite someone if there's a flood involved. Is that serious? That's what God thinks of intermarriages. Try Judah and his Canaanite wife. God pulled out his pink pearl. That's the name of an eraser. And took out four of them off that family tree. You say, but that was a wicked sin. But I want to tell you something. My God oversaw that whole event. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Why'd she conceive with one act? By chance. Forget it. My God's in charge of all such events. And he cut that effort right out. Abraham had been worried about it. Isaac had been worried about it. Jacob had been worried about it. Judah went out and did something like that. God took care of it. 
praise his holy name. Amen. And we'll be praying that God will take care of you if you try to go against this preaching. Ezra chapter 9. I don't say that in hate. I say that in love for God first and love for you second. Right. It's not hate. If I were to let you marry the person you love, that would be hate. That's right. If that person did not fear God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen. And about 31 other things that I have on a list that you'll have. Ezra 9, verse 2. I know we've come back to this chapter, but i got to read verse 2. Here's the sin. They have taken of their daughters for themselves. The Jews, the Israelites, have taken of these foreign daughters for themselves and for their sons. And here's the words I want you to notice. These are God's words, not mine. So that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. And yes, the rulers of the Israelites had been chief, had been greatly in this sin. But notice the words, the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of the lands. In Malachi chapter 2, very close to this event, even though it's greatly separated in your Bible by inches, very close to this event, in Malachi chapter 2 where it says, the Lord God, he hateth the putting away, Remember what the crime was that he hated there? Because he didn't hate putting away. He loved putting away when it was putting away foreign wives with their children. But what did he hate? Because the Israelite men were marrying foreign wives and putting away their Israelite wives. And the whole chapter there was about the fact that God created one man for one woman so that he might have a godly seed. Now notice here, by marrying unbelievers, we corrupt that holy seed by mingling it with the peoples of the lands. You say, but doesn't the Bible talk about a believer being married to an unbeliever? Yes. How did that happen? That's two unbelievers. One hears the gospel and gets converted and becomes a believer. And then you have a mixed marriage. And God has ways of dealing with that. But never does a believer marry an unbeliever to create a mixed marriage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What's more important in finding a spouse? Love or holiness? Holiness. There shouldn't even be a question. Holiness is far more important than love. You find a holy person that is interested in marrying you, whether there's any love there or not, a holy person is going to love you. That's what these people did. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. They married for holiness, not for love. We haven't even read anything about that. But they wanted someone that feared feared God and that would be part of that holy seed. Amen. Love is a commandment. You know, don't get the cart before the horse. Love is a commandment for what married people are supposed to do to each other. We have told, we have turned things upside down in the last few generations and we're reaping the consequences of it. Yeah. Now we let everyone marry whom they love and all their marriages stink and most of them end up in divorces. Yep. Isn't that incredible? Yep. Back when you didn't marry whom you love, but you married somebody that had great Christian and godly character of a saint, there were fewer divorces and happier families and larger families. Right. It should be simple to a believer. Because you just look in the Bible and say, every time we depart from God's way, we're getting trouble. Amen. The Lord hath made man upright, but he hath sought out many inventions. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what the Apostle Paul would write that church in the second time he wrote them. The first time he said, you're at liberty to marry whom you will, only in the Lord. And then he comes over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and it sounds like Moses again. Verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How many in a yoke? Two. Two. Well, that fits, doesn't it? Sounds like marriage. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's more than marriage, but it includes marriage. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteous? If a righteous person marries an unrighteous person, what fellowship 
What closeness, what unity are they going to have? They're contrary the one to the other. What communion hath light with darkness? What common union are you going to have light with darkness? Well, that's not fair to call somebody that's just not as holy as you darkness. That's what the Lord would say. The Lord always draws it in black and white terms. He doesn't say they're almost a Christian. That's what Agrippa said. The Lord didn't say that. And what concord, that's agreement, hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? The Bible tells us in the New Testament, verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, brethren, listen to me. Do you want to be like Seth and Enos? This verse tells you how to be like Seth and Enos. It tells you exactly how God can be your father and you can be his sons and daughters. How do you do that? By coming out from among them and being separate, saith the Lord. If you have any faith in your heart, any righteousness you should be provoked to great excitement right now. I would love to go back there and be like Seth and Enos and not mingle the seed with the women of the world, the daughters of men, and thus destroy the godly line except for Noah. This is how we do it, and this is New Testament. We come out from among them and be separate. You say, you're preaching like a Neanderthal in the 21st century. I'll take it as a compliment. I don't understand all the words. I didn't even know there was a Neanderthal man because I couldn't find him when I looked him up in my concordance. I'll take it as a compliment. But brethren, I want to be a John the Baptist. I want to be an Elijah. I want to preach what the Word of God says, and I want to go by the Word of God and it only. I haven't always. But the the haven't always is in the past. I don't care about the past. I can only press forward. I want to forget those things which are behind. We have got to keep a holy seed for the glory of God because He commands it. What does it mean to marry in the Lord? Are we talking about the eternal phase of salvation? They're in the Lord by election? How do you know that one? Are we talking about being in the Lord legally? That Jesus died for His sheep and that they're one of the sheep? No, that's a little vague too. We'll leave that up to the Lord in the book of life. How about the vital phase of regeneration? Yes, we can see some results of regeneration. What about the final phase of salvation? Are we only going to marry those that are in heaven? They're in the Lord. No. We're limited to one sense, and it's the practical phase of salvation, those that are in the Lord. Now, that little prepositional phrase, in the Lord, occurs several times, quite a few times in the New Testament in Paul's writings. And it means to be in the kingdom and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. To be in the kingdom and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't refer at all to our, it can't refer directly to our eternal, legal, vital, or final phases of salvation other than by implication because if a person is practically holy and practically a believer and practically faithful, what does that prove? They were eternally chosen in Christ. They were legally saved by Christ and they're born again but we tell it by their fruits. And we don't guess at it. We know it because they're faithful, true, and holy. To be in the Lord must be as much as our communion requires. That's got to be the minimum. Because if you don't meet the minimum to meet our communion requirements, then you're not in the Lord because we put you out. Well, if I go and join some other church, I'm back in the Lord. Oh, no. The Bible tells me that if we put you out, you are to be unto us as an heathen man and a publican. That's a pagan. That's a daughter of men. That's unmarriable. So the communion that we have, which are governed by the rules of the New Testament, is the minimum. Now, is that all that we should want? Here we have 50 that make up the communion of the Greenville Church at this present hour. Are they all suitable spouses? 
No. For those who really want to marry a holy person. Do they meet the minimum qualifications? Yes. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm saying, oh, there's a great difference in this congregation of 50 members. From those who are truly holy and living with zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are barely hanging on by their fingertips in the sight of the Lord. It's always been that way. There's those with zeal and there's those with none. There's those that are professors and have no fruit. You say you're talking about your own members. Not my members. I'm just a servant of this church. You're all the members of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you don't look much like it at times. And God knows the hearts of all men and God knows exactly how I'm saying these words. That our communion has to be the minimum. But for someone who really wants to marry well, they're going to want to marry the most zealous of the available in the communion. Why would you want to marry the least zealous? They're going to be least zealous in their marriage. And you're going to have least zealous grandchildren. And they're going to take your child and make them less zealous. How can we possibly accept the modern concept that as long as you're going to church on Sunday, you're in the Lord? If you go out on the street and ask a person that comes out of one of these churches, what does it mean to be in the Lord? Well, we're all in the Lord. They'll hug you. Come on in. We're all in the Lord. Well, you just had some magical show up there with some priest dipping a little wafer into some wine and calling it the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I don't think I'm in that Lord because my Lord doesn't come down on altars like that for magical services or ceremonies. No, I'm not in that Lord. So you go to the next building, and you go in, you see, you say, Why? there's all these cars in the parking lot. Where is everyone? Well, they're in the inner sanctum. What do you mean the inner sanctum? I thought that the churches of Jesus Christ were open to the public. Well, they're having a baptism for the dead in their holy underwear, and you can't see it. You say, what in the world? Well, yeah, we're the Mormons. We're all in the Lord, aren't we? And we could go on and on, couldn't we? They all think that we're all in the Lord. That's the effort being made today by Satan. Let's break down all doctrinal and biblical and scriptural divisions among men and water down doctrine until no one's serving the Lord anymore. Huge movements. The charismatic movement does it. The promise keepers does, does it. Bill Gothard does it. All ecumenical movements like Billy Graham does it. Youth for Christ Ministries does it. They all do it. Break down doctrinal distinctions and say we're all in the body of Christ. That's how they word it. We're all in the body of Christ. If Jesus Christ has pulled his candlestick, is it a body of Christ? No, it isn't. It's a dead congregation. Let me be real practical. Did you know that obstinacy about a power cord and a jigsaw can leave you a heathen man and a publican? Because you will not hear the judgment of those least esteemed in the church of Jesus Christ over a torn power cord and a jigsaw, you can be put out. And the Bible says that once you're outside, you're to be viewed as a heathen man and a publican. Now, should God's saints marry heathen men? No. And how'd they get out there? For tearing the cord off a jigsaw and not being willing to to replace it. You say, that is unbelievably strict. This is the Lord Jesus Christ being king and having written down the rules for how his citizens are to be treated. If you back off of what I just said from Matthew chapter 18, I want to tell you what verse is going to stop you from backing off further. And if there isn't a verse to stop you from backing off further, do you know how far you'll back off? All the way until we're all in the body of Christ. That's how they got to where they're at. We aren't going that road. We're going to stay with the word of God. Amen. And I know there's nice automobiles out there on I-85 running to and from Charlotte and Atlanta through Greenville. And I know this is a building that has air conditioning, and Abraham, Seth, and Enos didn't have that. But brethren, can you put yourselves in the sandals of Abraham, Seth, and Enos and want to have and preserve a holy seed like they did? 
Abraham said to his highest servant, come here and put your hand under my thigh. That was a serious oath. I charge thee before the God of heaven and earth, don't you dare let my son marry a Canaanite. Scripture is absolute in its intolerance of false doctrine. Absolute. Intolerant. There isn't any room for error. You say, but we could be at error. Sure, we, we probably are. But until the Lord tells it to us and shows it to us, we believe that what we're practicing is the truth. And we hold to it and we're intolerant of false doctrine. What would Paul, how many verses would I need to read? We've been over them so many times. Paul would say, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Now, can you marry somebody that you're supposed to avoid? Paul would say, if an angel from heaven, and that's what your daughter daughter will tell you sometime, he's an angel. Oh. And so the father has to say, though an angel from heaven were to preach any other gospel than what Paul preached to us and what we believe, God says he's accursed. So he might be an angel to you, but he's accursed to me, and no, you can't marry him. If we're going to back off of Galatians 1, 8, 9, where, where, we, where do we stop? Right. You show me your verses that are going to protect you, allowing you to back up a certain distance. You don't have any. And I'll show you that if you back up that distance, you'll back up all the way. Right. You're just looking for an excuse to cater to your flesh rather than follow the Word of God. Why is it important, brethren? And I've got to close, but why is it important? I've only got three Three questions today to ask and to answer. What, why, and how? And we've just done what? What does it mean to marry in the Lord? I've just shown you. It's the testimony of Scripture that God has a few faithful people on planet Earth, and He wants to keep them faithful and holy. And one way to keep them faithful and holy, one of the chief ways, is for them to only marry in the Lord. Why do we do it? Because God commands it. That's the first reason we do it. God commands it. Second reason we do it? so that we can leave a godly seed in this earth to the glory of God that will love Him and worship Him and serve Him and contend for the Scriptures after we're gone. Amen. What's another reason we do it? To avoid the sour marriages that we're going to have if we let believers marry unbelievers. And unbelievers can sit in congregations of believers. Unbelievers are simply those who say I'm a Christian, but who don't live it. What's a professing Christian? You know, I looked that one up, and I couldn't find it. What's a professing Christian? Christian isn't even a godly term anyway. It's a term of derision created by the enemies of the saints of Jesus Christ. I like the term saint, because that says more. Saint means a sanctified one that's living a holy life. Christian today... How many Christians are there in the world? Population 6 billion. How many? 2 billion are called Christian. One third of the entire earth is Christian. Wow! God must be pleased. His blessings, showers of blessings must be coming when he reads the almanac to know that one third of the earth are Christians loving Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? But if you look in the almanac, 2 billion. They're professing. Where are the saints? See, in the old days, it was a little easier. By the old days, I mean Seth and Enos. They were worshiping the true God of heaven, and the others were worshiping idols of stone. But Satan's got a new technique now that Jesus Christ came into the earth. It's called in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, another Jesus, another spirit, and another Gospel. Much more subtle. That's why I'm saying the things I am about all those who call themselves Christians. They're professors. They're believing in another Jesus. They have another spirit behind their preaching. And they're believing another gospel. We cannot marry those. We just have to be a little more perceptive than Seth and Enos were. Are you kidding, son? 
I'm not going to let you marry that woman. They worship Molech at their house. Haven't you ever been down there and seen them offering their babies to Molech? That's a little easier, isn't it? Then you have some, the son comes home and says, but she's a Baptist. She reads her Bible. Which Bible? Which Baptist? Which Jesus? Which spirit? Which gospel? You say, you're being too tight. All I did was quote 2 Corinthians 11. Why does it bother you? We'll take up the rest of this this evening. Brethren, I I look at this conflict that has occurred since Cain and Abel and come all the way down to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came into this world, all the religious leaders of his day, what did they want to do to him? Kill him. What did he do wrong? Was he gracious? Did he take their money? Did he heal their sick? Did he feed their multitudes? They wanted to kill him? Where does this incredible animosity come from? Satan versus the truth. Where do we want to line up ourselves? In the name and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come martyrdom. You sang that. I will be true to thee till death. I just wonder if you all can be true to it till marriage. A whole lot easier than death. But we have our challenge, don't we? Yep. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.